I have a serious question I want to begin with this morning. When you think of Jesus, who or what do you see? When you think of Jesus, who or what do you see? What do you imagine? I mean, from the beginning of church history, images have been painting, depicting some idea of Jesus. Of course, those paintings, especially from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, have come under much understandable criticism with their blonde-haired, blue-eyed, European-looking Jesus. Uh, Lots of paintings from which to choose. I chose these three. Some of the most popular are the one of the Lord's Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. You understand it probably looked nothing like that, but you can revel in the picture. This one by Rembrandt. Notice at least without the uh, the blonde hair. And then this one of the Transfiguration by Raphael, that's actually in the Vatican. My wife and I got to see that's a beautiful picture. One of the most popular, more recent uh, paintings is is this by Warner Salman, painted in 1940. How many of you have seen that one? How many of you have had that one? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it was uh, quite popular. I can remember this hung somewhere in our house, not the actual painting, but somewhere a print in our house as a kid. But you should know that our depictions have recently progressed from paintings uh, to film. But then comes the challenge of selecting the actor to play Jesus. I mean, are there a lot of guys who answer the casting call to play that particular part? I want to play Jesus. What did he look like? How did he act? Now, some of the uh, recent and most popular Jesuses come from the Jesus film, released in 1979, probably the most popular, understandably. It has been translated in over 1,800 languages and counting. It's been viewed by an estimated 3 billion people. It's proven to be a wonderful evangelistic tool. My wife and I used to show it at an evangelistic home Bible study that we had in our home for years. Uh, the movie is based on the Gospel of Luke, and, and Jesus was played by Brian Deacon, who was 30 when he played the part. That, That's pretty close. That's not bad. In the movie Son of God, the story is told interestingly by the apostle John while he was in exile. That's interesting. It was released in 2014 with Jesus played by Diogo Diogo Morgado. I have to say that is one very good-looking Jesus. Of course, many of us are familiar with The Passion of the Christ, released in 2004. The movie focuses on the gruesome suffering of Jesus during the end of Passion Week uh, to include a lengthy, violent, bloody depiction of His crucifixion. Jesus was played by Jim Caviezel. And finally, and most recently, comes the series called The Chosen. How many watching that? Okay, all right. Um, it's a multi-year project with the first season released in 2017, and Jesus is played by Jonathan Rumi. I think that's why you say his name, Jonathan Rumi. It's interesting, he's 47. I think he's a bit too old for the part, but they didn't ask me. However, many of you have, I don't even have this in my notes, many of you have asked me about, uh, about The Chosen, so let me just give you some unsolicited opinion. <laughs> Uh, listen, I think it's a pretty good series. I, I, I've watched, we've watched uh, part of it, and uh, I think they do a pretty good job of bringing out some personalities of, of the disciples and the way they fought and the character and, and stuff like that. It's really, really good. I only have really two concerns um, with this particular show, 
And uh, number one is the author or the writer, producer, I think he is, uh, Dallas Jenkins, is way too comfortable with Mormons. Um, uh, it's, it's as if he doesn't understand that Mormons aren't Christians. And uh, I, I could go more, more into that, but it's just a little, just a little troubling to me. And the second concern that I have is, while I understand creative license, there's an awful lot in the, in the series that actually isn't in the Bible. In fact, there are a lot of fabricated stories. Again, I understand it. I don't think it does violence to the person and work of Jesus. It's just like, are there not enough good stories in the Bible that you have to make some more up? And uh, so, so anyway, there you go. Um, for what it's worth. Of course, there are many other movies and series, um, too many to mention, which depict the life of Christ. One thing I want you to notice is what Jesus looks like, as well as how He acts. Most of the actors chosen to play the part would not fit the description of Jesus in Isaiah 53, which says, He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Sorry, guys, most of you don't actually fit the part. But hey, who wants a less than attractive Jesus on the big screen, right? I mean, who would pay to see Wallace Shawn as Jesus? <laughs> Even though you should know he is Jewish. But, but, but by the way, he is an atheist, so that wouldn't work. And further, how did Jesus act? And that is, what was his personality like? The only self-description Jesus gave in the Gospels is in Matthew chapter 11 when he said, I am gentle and humble. Is that the way when you are thinking about Jesus? Is that the way you see him? Now, some things can be deduced from the New Testament, and many of those aforementioned actors do actually, I think, a pretty good job. It, it's interesting to note one movie of the life of Jesus based on the Gospel of Matthew, I think, in fact, I think that's what it's called, the Gospel according to Matthew, uh, shows Jesus smiling and laughing a lot. In fact, I watched it, I, I called him the laughing Jesus. And yet not once, did you know that not once in the New Testament is it recorded that Jesus ever laughed, even smiled? Now, I'm not suggesting that he did not. Of course he did. But is, is that the first thing that should come to our minds? I mean, he was called a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Jesus has. Jesus knows. So again, when you see Jesus, that's the question I want you to ponder today. What do you see? We are not told in the Gospels what he looked like, you know, physically, Long flowing hair, well-manicured beard, dressed in a white robe with a blue sash, Birkenstocks because, well, chacos won't work. <laughs> we actually don't know. What is it that you see? We're in a study of the book of Revelation, which surprisingly does give a rather detailed description of Jesus, but in highly symbolic, image-driven language, meaning it's not what we see per se, but what is presented um, uh, represented by what is seen. So it probably, this description probably won't help you in your paintings, although some have tried. In fact, if you tried to paint this description, it would look rather weird. This is, again, some have tried. Here's one. Another problem with this particular drawing is that it's missing some, some important things from the description. So how about this one? What? doesn't work, does it? I would suggest some things about this picture as we get in, or this description as we get into it today. 
First, it is unhelpful to try to break it apart and overanalyze the description too deeply. One author suggested it would be like trying to unravel the rainbow. Think about that. A rainbow is magnificent because it it all goes together, which means, second, the description is meant to be seen together and overwhelm us with the exalted, glorious character of Christ. Can I remind you that this book is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ? So so this image is meant to overwhelm us. So perhaps the mental image that you have is lacking. Now, I know that all of those movies and and things like that uh, depict his life while on earth, but is that the way we should see him now? This image, these symbols that John uses do mean something, uh, which means that we do learn some important things about who he is and how he acts. And in his exalted state, it's a little different than the humble Jesus, gentle and lowly, that again, we often see in film. Finally, as we've seen in our study, this book was written to struggling, suffering believers meant to encourage them, and this exalted description, I believe, will do just that even for us today. It is magnificent. So let's read our text. Hold on to your hats. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet, saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest. Now, like across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. Is Is that what you see? His feet were like burnished bronze, when it had been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Placed his right hand on me and saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. And I was dead. And behold... I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and all the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. There's an awful lot there, so let's get right into it. This is the first vision that John 
sees and records for us, most rightly point out that it actually goes through chapter 3 since Jesus in chapters 2 and 3 tells John in this vision what to write to each of these verses. But for this text, here's the outline, the commission of John, verses 9 to 11, the vision of Jesus, verses 12 to 16. And by the way, that's as far as we're going to get today, so you can take a deep breath. And then uh, th- that, that vision of Jesus is re- going to require a recommission of John, which Lord willing, we'll look at next week. In these first three verses, John is commissioned by Jesus, we find at the end of the chapter, to write the book of Revelation. That's what he tells him to do in verse 19. The things that you see, which are, which will be hereafter, which means, this is what I want to point out to you. This book carries divine authority. I said when we started the book, we don't want to be prophecy mongers engrossed only with this particular book. Neither do we want to ignore it because it's just weird or because it is, uh, because of its difficult content. We, we saw that in verse one. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ from God the Father to the Son through an angel to John. It's interesting to note the commission is much the same as that of Isaiah and Ezekiel, who similarly had visions with much the same response. What that communicates is that John is a prophet in much the same way as Isaiah and Ezekiel. Have you ever thought of it that way? Again, with visions of of God and instructions to proclaim what was seen and and, and heard. Now, we learn a little about John and his circumstances when he wrote. He begins, don't miss it, by identifying with his readers. He's going to have much to say to struggling believers, and he wants them to know, I understand I'm with you. I'm not writing from an ivory palace. I've been there, done that. In fact, when he's writing, I'm doing that. Look at what he says uh, uh, right there. I, John. Now, you'd expect him to say something exalted like an apostle of Jesus Christ, but the authority of this book comes not necessarily from his apostleship, although it does, but from its ultimate source. Yes, that's true of every book. Every book of the Bible has God through the Holy Spirit as its ultimate source. We saw that in 2 Peter chapter 1. But John has made clear this came from the Father through Jesus, through an angel to him, and he was told to write. He simply records what he hears and sees. So no matter how difficult this book is, it is God's word to us. It's not I, John, the apostle, but I, John, notice your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. By the way, just an aside, that what I'm suggesting to you should be true of any preacher or teacher or pastor. It is not I, Scott, the pastor, say. It should be I, Scott, your brother, sharing what I have seen and Heard. My authority comes not from my position, but from the Word of God. Anytime you, should you leave this church sinfully? Uh, no, should you leave this church, and, and, and I'm just kidding, and go somewhere else? If you go to a church and it's all about the pastor and the pastor's authority, and thus saith the pastor, go somewhere else. As John first says, I'm a brother with you. No, I know, don't, don't, don't just slip over that. I know we use that term a lot of each other. That's great. We're used to that word. But from the earliest days of the church, they saw themselves as family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's who we are, people. We're a family. 
I, I tell the kids that I meet with, talk about baptism, to include um, uh, uh, Oliver. When you come up out of the water, the people will clap and, and they will cheer. Why? Because it's like, hey, way to go, touchdown. Uh, because you are declaring that you are a believer in Jesus like they are. And when they clap, they are saying, way to go, little brother. Way to go, little sister. We are with you. Welcome to the family. That's why baptism Sundays are my favorite Sundays. Welcome to the family. Is this the way we feel about one another, family? It is said that blood is thicker than water, which means family ties are tighter than any other. Yes. And His blood, which binds us, is thicker than any other. I'm going to say to you, it matters not if we share the same last name, the same physical blood, the same ethnicity, the same race, the same gender, the same nationality. It matters not. What matters is that we share in the blood of Christ and we are family. He also says, I'm a fellow partaker with you in three things. That word for fellow partaker is the word, the compound word of the word koinonia, which we typically translate rightly fellowship. The word is defined as a sharing in something, a sharing together in something, a bond of life, a bond of life that unites us. And John lists three things that we share, three bonds of life that unite us. Ready? Tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance. And you say, I'll take kingdom for 500, Alex, but I'm going to leave tribulation behind. I want you to know these go together. It's intentional with kingdom right there in the middle. I'd point out that being partakers together of the kingdom is what Jesus made us through His death, through His blood, verse 6. He has made us a kingdom. We are part of the kingdom of God by nature of having been freed from our sin. Yes, we are saved individually, sins washed personally, but we are saved into community, into a, we're saved into a family. It's why we do public baptism, as Josh said. That's why we, we do it publicly. It's not we don't fill up the, the, the bathtub at home. No, we're a, we're a family. We are now subjects of the kingdom. It's part of a family as brothers and sisters in, in Christ. And since we are part of His kingdom, which is in opposition to the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of Satan, the kingdom of the beast, as we'll see later, we will suffer tribulation. See how it goes together? He's not talking about suffering because we live in a broken world where we get flat tires and sickness and natural disasters because even unbelievers get that. No, he is talking about tribulation by opposition because we are part of God's kingdom. Because we are, we will be opposed and John will illustrate that by identification at the end of the verse. Tribulation, he says, is why I'm here, because I'm part of the kingdom, which thirdly requires perseverance. It's one of the primary purposes of this book, to encourage faithfulness, perseverance in the face of tribulation, because we are the kingdom, and Jesus is our king. We give, one said it this way, we give, I love this, unflinching allegiance to Jesus, and we refuse to give it to another. We give it solely to King Jesus. You see, 
People will be fine with you if you love Jesus as long as you don't love Jesus solely. And as long as you, they, don't expect, they don't think that you expect them to love Jesus solely. I'm a fellow partaker of kingdom cause tribulation, kingdom cause perseverance with you. They are ours in Jesus. Because of Jesus, it's a package deal. We get it all. It's on the island of Patmos, which is an island in the Aegean Sea, about 37 miles to the west, southwest of Miletus. Miletus is a, was a port city uh, of Ephesus where John had spent quite a bit of time. Small, rocky island, uh, only 10 miles by 6 miles. There was a small settlement there. Some suggested that that settlement was a penal colony, not a lot of evidence for that. But notice John says, I was there because of the Word of God, I was on this island because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He said those same things back in verse 2, referring to the book of Revelation. What I'm writing to you is the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So he's, they, don't, don't miss it. They sent him to a, to a colony. He's exiled there because of the, the, his, the Word of God and his, the testimony of Jesus. And he's still going to give us the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus, even from a rocky volcanic island. Because you can't shut God's people's mouths. Amen. Some of the early church, Father Sullivan was exiled because he proclaimed the word of God concerning the testimony of Jesus. That is the gospel. He was exiled because he proclaimed the word of God as it relates to the singular, don't miss it, the singular necessity of Jesus and his gospel. Again, people will not be bothered by you as long as they're fine to live their lives and believe whatever they want. But as soon as you tell them of the singular necessity of believing in Jesus, they will not like it. So what do we do? We will find that persecution had begun against Christians because of their sole allegiance to Jesus, because of their rejection of false gods because they refused to worship the emperor, because they refused to participate in pagan worship and pagan festivals of the empire. They refused to engage in immorality, which was rampant in their culture. They, 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 would, they would not love the world and all it has to offer. And it cost John, it cost them, and it will cost us in increasing measure. If you don't know that, you, you've not watched a minute of the news. He says further in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. I love that. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. This is the only time that term, Lord's Day, is used in the Bible. Most agree that it was Sunday, the first day of the week. It became special to Christians because of the resurrection of Jesus on Sunday. It became known as the Lord's Day. We read the church broke bread, probably communion, uh, on, the Lord, uh, on the first day of the week. And they took offerings on the first day of the week. Some today still call um, Sunday the Lord's Day. It should be noted that the Lord's Day is not the, um, it is the first day of the week, not the seventh day of the week, meaning it is not the Christian Sabbath. You see, the church among, uh, began among the Jews. As the church began among the Jews, they still gathered in synagogues on the Sabbath to share the truth about the Messiah, but they would gather then on the next day as Christians on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. 
Here's my point. This has been the practice since the inception of the church to gather on the Lord's day. So the weekender on Friday night that I was reading an article this week, largest evangelical denomination in the U.S., um, says that they have lost 19%. That's in the millions, by the way. 19% of their people because of COVID. Really? The church has been gathering since its inception for 2,000 years, and, and now one in five in that denomination are saying no more? I love what Michael says, speaking of the weekender, at, what he says at the weekender, the church of God, the church is God's idea. It's not like we got together and said, hmm, let's see, what can we do to get a bunch of people together? I know, how about every Sunday morning, a prime time of their weekend? No, it was God's idea. It was the Lord's day that the church gathered in community to, to worship, to grow, and to serve, and they've been doing it for 2,000 years, and we will continue to do it come hell or high water or COVID. Notice what he says. Notice that he says he was in the, that he was in the Spirit. Lots of discussion about that. Was he in a Spirit-powered trance? and thereby in a suitable state for prophecy uh, and a vision? Was he in a special spiritual ecstatic place? Was he specially filled with the Spirit in worship on the Lord's day? I, I don't know for sure, although I opt for both the first and the last. I do know this. It was a special day. And he was filled with and controlled by the Spirit in a very special way. I must tell you, as I've been studying this text over the past, in advance over the past few weeks, I have prayed to be in such a place and in such a state, filled with, especially controlled by the Spirit, so as to be able to hear from the Lord th through the Word. I'm not asking for a new revelation. The Word of God is complete. That's not what I'm suggesting. But I want to be in, a, in special communion with God in the Spirit to be able to hear His Word. Can you imagine what that would be like for us to be in the Spirit? While in that state, Jesus, or John heard a loud voice behind him, like the sound of a trumpet. The trumpet in Scripture often signals or announces something important, as it will do at the return of Christ. The voice said, write in a book what you see. It's interesting, John uh, will write both what he sees and what he hears. Write in a book what you see. Send it to the seven churches, those seven churches of Asia Minor. Uh, we've already talked about that. I'm not going to go into it again. But why, were, why did Jesus pick these seven? Some suggest they were along a postal route, and the book would have then been easily dis disseminated. Others point out that uh, all seven of these towns were involved in emperor worship, which he's going to talk about. Some uh, suggest that these seven churches had issues that the rest of the churches need to hear. Please note, write a book and send it to the seven churches, singular book, seven churches. All seven would get this same book to include uh, the specific address to each one of the churches, which is why later we will read, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So these letters, while addressing specific needs in specific churches, are actually for all churches throughout time and place. We noted that 
that's likely why there were seven addressed. It speaks of the totality of the Christian church, which means this book is for us today. It brings us to our second point. Very, I'm going to go through this. I'll try to go through this more quickly. The vision or the description of Jesus in verses 12 to 16. Now, as I suggested earlier, we're not going to get bogged down in the specifics of the description. If we do that, we'll be, we'll be separating the rainbow. Yes, we'll try to see what each thing meant, but here's my encouragement to you right now. I want you to see the whole together. Hopefully, I want us, I want us, I want us to be overwhelmed like John was. When is the last time you thought of Jesus and were overwhelmed by what you thought of? Maybe this will mess with our mental image of Jesus. Having heard the voice, John turned to see the voice speaking to him, and the first thing he saw was seven golden lampstands. This is not the menorah, you know, that's seven armed candlestick with seven spouts that was there in the tabernacle or in, in the temple. Now, verse 20, uh, th these were seven separate lampstands, and verse 20 tells us that they are the churches, speaks of the church's responsibility to be light in the world, faithful witnesses. We'll talk about that next week. Um, and in the middle of the lampstands, that is, in the churches, John says, I saw one like a son of man. So all last week, it's clearly a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, which speaks of one like a son of man who was presented to the ancient of days, that is God himself, who is sitting on his throne. We noted that was a reference to the Messiah. It's always been seen as messianic. It was also Jesus' favorite self-designation. He called himself the Son of God, uh, Son of Man, more than anyone else. Why? Why? Why Son of Man? Well, because he understood, and we need to understand, it was clearly a declaration of deity. Because to this Son of Man in Daniel chapter seven was given glory and an eternal dominion and eternal kingdom. This is, of course, in fulfillment of the promise uh, to David that his descendant would sit on the throne forever. And the son of Mary in the line of David, Jesus, the Christ, the God man, the divine son of man would sit on the throne of his uh, sit on the throne at his father's right hand with infinite glory and, and eternal dominion. That's what Son of Man means. Does it speak of his humanity? Some suggest it does. I don't have a problem with that. But it is referring to Daniel chapter 7. It is referring to the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, what did this Son of Man look like? Not like any of the Jesuses you have seen on the screen. In fact, probably not like any Jesus you've ever imagined. But this is image-driven, apocalyptic language. There are many similarities. I need to point this out. Don't have time to go into it. Many similarities between this description and, and, and one of an angel in Daniel 10. Remember, John has lots of Old Testament allusions, lots from, especially from the book of Daniel. And if you compare this description from this angel in Daniel chapter 10, there's a lot of similarities, no doubt influence what he writes here. Um, but one is an angel and one is clearly the son of God. They both speak of heavenly, otherworldly existence. So look at it with me. First, he is clothed in a robe, reaching down to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Two possible ideas here. Scholars are almost equally divided. Some suggest this refers to the robe of the high priests and six of the seven times a long robe is referred to in the Old Testament. It refers to the robe of the high priest. And this would fit well 
uh, here because of the book's high Christology. Because right here in chapter 1, we would note that Christ is um, prophet, priest, and king. Others suggest the robe is referring to Daniel chapter 10, remember, verse 5, which speaks of the angel wearing fine linen with a golden belt. They, they, they suggest this first des description depicts Jesus as an exalted, dignified person. Take your pick. Either one fit well. He is either high priest or a exalted, dignified person, or maybe both. The next one, however, clearly refers to the deity of this person, how his head and his hair were white like white wool. John repeats it for emphasis, like snow. This is a reference again to Daniel chapter 7, where the Ancient of Days, God himself took his throne, and his clothing was like white snow, and his hair like pure wool. Now listen, back then, white or gray hair, white or gray hair was a symbol of dignity, wisdom, and age. And so it should be today. Yet many... Not a problem with this. Many dye their hair to cover it up because of the way that we disregard and even disrespect age in our youth-driven culture. But then it was a symbol of wisdom and dignity. What is incredibly important to notice is John applies this Old Testament description of God to Jesus. Do you see that? And by the way, he does that all over the book uh, of Revelation. Uh, the, 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 he's the Alpha. He speaks of the Alpha and Omega in chapter 1, referring to God, and he applies it to Jesus in chapter 22. High Christology. How can he give these descriptions of God, clearly God in the Old Testament, even right there in the book, how can he give these descriptions to Jesus? Because Jesus is God. That'll get you in trouble as well. Of course, this white clothing of the ancient of days is of the ancient of days is also a reference to the transfiguration when Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Mark says, whiter than any launderer could could dye them. Remember at this sight, the voice and the voice that came from heaven, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Peter, James, and John fell face down to the ground, and they were what? Terrified. Is that, is that an appropriate response to seeing God? Jesus came and touched them saying, get up and do not be afraid. You see, when presented with such a sight, they fell down in fear. When they saw Jesus in his glory, maybe that should mess with our mental image of Jesus. Back to the text, Jesus' eyes became like a flame of fire don't miss the number of times that John writes, he was like a son of man, his hair was white like wool, like snow, his eyes were like a flame of fire, symbolic language, blazing eyes referred to as penetrating divine insight and in his ability to discern and judge rightly. Don't, don't miss that because his blazing eyes will appear again in the letter to Thyatira as he deals with and judges the cult within the church led by Jezebel. In fact, we're going to see in the letters to the seven churches that his penetrating gaze is used to evaluate the condition of the churches. Makes me wonder, 
as he gazes upon us with those penetrating eyes of judgment, what does he see here? And what does he see in my heart? What does he see in yours? Verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze, made to glow in a furnace. The only place the, this particular word, burnished bronze, appears anywhere, both in the New Testament or in any Greek literature. Um, it's similar to a description in Daniel 10, his arms and his feet like the gleam of polished bronze. Then in Ezekiel 1, living beings, living creatures, had feet like burnished bronze. It's not the same word, burnished bronze. Most agree, all taken together, it refers to the glory, stability, and purity. Remember, it's glowing as, it, as in a furnace. It's speaking of the purity of Christ and His ability to judge and, and by stamping out um, in, in divine justice all falsehood and impurities and evil. Remember, His his readers were facing evil, and he's saying Jesus is capable of taking care of that. I hope you're seeing a little different picture than one we see in the Gospels in his ministry at his first coming and what we see perhaps in our mind's eye. Perhaps when we think of Jesus, we should have a little different view. He is right now ruler and judge, penetrating divine, awesome God of the universe. Next, we see his voice was like the sound of many waters. This fits yet another Old Testament allusion to God to show that Christ is glorious, divine, and powerful. In Ezekiel 1, the four living creatures' wings are like the roar of abundant waters, like the voice of the Almighty. Many waters, abundant waters, like the voice of God. Later in Ezekiel 43, we read God's voice was like the sound of many waters. The point is, once again, Jesus is described like God, this time with powerful, awesome, commanding voice like rushing waters. You ever been close to a waterfall? That's it. That's what he sounds like. Next we see Jesus held seven stars in his right hand. The right hand throughout Scripture symbolizes power, authority. We see in verse 20, the stars are the angels of the seven churches. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk about that later. The point is here, while Jesus is in the midst of the churches, the scene as he's walking among the lampstands, he sovereignly holds the church in the palm of his hand. It's his church, you see. I will build my church at the very gates of Hell will not overcome it. I've got him right here. This entire detailed picture is resounding with power and authority. Next, we see that he has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. This is not the short Roman sword used in battle like in Ephesians 6, but this broad sword used like a Sith for harvest and judgment. Don't miss that. The image that John, that Jesus actually intends to portray, that John wants us to know, that John wants the churches to know, is that he is King of kings and he is Lord of lords, Revelation 19 says, with a sharp sword coming from his mouth. It speaks of the, uh, the power of his word to strike down nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Do you think this would have been encouraging to str struggling, suffering believers? The day is coming. He will strike them down and rule them. Power, authority, judgment. Lastly, his face is like the sun shining in his strength. Again, we are reminded of the transfiguration when his face shone like the sun. 
Interestingly, such description is applied to God in the Old Testament when he's called a sun and a shield. And later we learn there's no need for a sun in the new heaven and the new earth, nor the need of a lamp because the Lord himself will be the lamp. Which brings us to our conclusion. I'm almost done. There's a need of a recommission of John because in verse 17... When he sees this amazing, awesome, powerful image of Jesus, he falls at his feet like a dead man. I would suggest to you that we treat Jesus too much like a buddy. Too much like a pal. We see this happen over and over in the Old Testament. People coming into the presence of God and falling prostrate. Does your mental image of Jesus include such a glorious God that you fall prostrate before Him in fear? When Joshua came face to face with the angel of the Lord, that's, a, that's a, called a theophany or the presence of God, he fell on his face to the earth. When Isaiah saw God, he cried out, Woe is me, for I am ruined, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, that is the Almighty. When Ezekiel re- received his vision, we read, Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God, and when I saw it, I fell on my face. We've already seen that when faced with the glory of the Son and the brilliant in his brilliance on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John fell down in fear, terrified. I believe a view of the glory of God causes his creatures to include those made in his image to fall to their faces in worship. Why do I believe that? Read Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. We'll get there. Is this your response when you think of seeing God? When you think of Jesus, what do you see? I'll comment on the, verse, the rest of the verses next week. Notice the end of verse 17. He placed his right hand on me. Right hand of power and authority and said, do not be afraid. This is, you see, this is the only sensible response when coming face to face with God is abject horror. There will be other times John falls to, down before angelic beings and they will tell him, don't, don't bow to me, worship God. Whatever your mind's eye sees when you see Jesus, it should be a picture of awesome glory that drives you to your knees. But then he will reach out his right hand of awesome power and authority of grace and comfort and touch you and say, do not be afraid. When you see Jesus, what do you see? Let's stand for prayer. Father, I'm reminded of the time that Moses wanted to see, your, see you in all your glory. And he said, well, you can't. It'll kill you. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, cover you with my hand. I'll pass by. I'll let you see my backside or the, the effects of what happens when I pass by. Well, the great people of the Scripture, when they came face to face with you, Almighty God, and, and in heaven, myriads upon myriads of angels, 24 elders surrounding the throne, they would f- fall on their faces 
Cry out, holy, 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 worthy is the lamb that was slain. We are, we are unworthy, made worthy by the blood of Christ, yes. But we love and serve an awesome, mighty God. Give us right thoughts about you. And then place your comforting, forgiving, gracious hand upon us. Lift our faces towards you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.